As Paul wraps up this short second letter to this young church, remember these people are under two years old in the Lord, he says, Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. You know, it's always fun to watch our children, and in my case now, watching my grandchildren grow up. They get so excited about everything. You know, Grandpa, look look what I can do, that kind of thing. Or, you know, Grandma, here's a picture I drew for you. And, of course, all those go on the art gallery. That's the refrigerator. But um, especially with my granddaughters, and this happened with my daughters, as they uh, grow up through the teen years, it's just kind of like watching a beautiful flower unfold as they mature and... Um, Right before your eyes, they're changing. It's also gratifying to watch believers in the Lord Jesus Christ grow. Um, Especially, I enjoy when I know someone is coming out of a very difficult past. And Christ reached down and saved them, and they're different. He changed their hearts, and they're very different. And to see them gain a victory over some sin or to see them engaging in ministry to others is just a a joy in the Lord. And, you know, some of us who are older in the Lord may not see the changes outwardly or even inwardly as much as it seems like in the early stages they grow like children. And then maybe we mature out, but we should never stop growing. I don't care if you've been a Christian for 50 years. You should not stop growing in the Lord. Paul, wrapping up this second letter, offers his fourth prayer in this letter for these new believers. And it's a short letter, but in chapter 1, verses 11 to 12, he prays. In chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, he prays. Chapter 3, verse 5, he prays. And again here, um, verse 16, he says, Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. And then, after a verse where he authenticates himself as the author of this letter, he concludes in verse 18, The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. The fact that Paul prays so many times in such a short letter shows us that prayer needs to permeate our lives because we are dependent on the Lord every day and everything, and so we should be praying often, depending on Him, both for our own growth, but also for the growth of others that we care about. I think also another thing, and we'll see that here, is that Paul's prayers are infused with the love and grace of the Lord Jesus. And we all need God's grace if we're going to grow. 
those qualities are the prime motivation to grow in the Lord, that the Lord has been gracious to me. And certainly while this prayer at the end of this book is not a comprehensive uh, uh, treatment of the subject, I think Paul's prayer here gives us a short pattern for Christian growth. And there are four things here. First of all, to grow in Christ, seek his peace in every situation. Seek his presence every day. And then submit to his word as your authority. And finally, saturate your life with his grace. First of all, then, to grow in Christ, seek his peace in every situation. That's at the start of verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. Keep in mind, these young believers were going through persecution. It's hard for anybody, but especially young believers. Uh, They were battling some false teachers who had come into the church. Satan seems always to infiltrate with bad doctrine. And as we saw last time, they were dealing with some unruly church members. And each of those situations can result in strife in a local church. So in the battle, Paul prays for the reality of the Lord's peace continually and in every circumstance. And while we can apply that individually and should... The context here especially is for peace in the local church, for peace in the congregation. It's the only time in the New Testament that we read the phrase, the Lord of peace, uh, referring to Jesus, of course. Um, More often, it's the God of peace, referring to God the Father. And we also know that the Holy Spirit gives peace because that's one of the fruit. Uh, that he gives there in Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, peace, and so on. Um, And so all three members of the Trinity are involved as the source of peace for us. Behind this was Paul's concept as a Jewish man of shalom. And in the Old Testament, that concept referred not just to the absence of strife, but it was a, a prayer for overall well-being and wholeness in the Lord. But peace as believers has three dimensions as we've looked at before, but let me go over them again. First of all, peace with God, the vertical aspect, uh, is a gift that comes from Christ from two sources, justification by faith and through sanctification. By birth and because of our sins, we all were hostile toward God. We were all alienated from him in our thoughts and deeds. And then by grace, Christ obtained our peace with God through the blood of his, Christ, uh, his cross. And so Paul can say in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ uh, is the source of our peace uh, with the Father. Now, people who are outside of Christ may have a sense of peace, but it's a false peace. It's a peace not based objectively in the truth of God. 
Often their peace comes because they think too highly of themselves and they think too lowly of God. And so they figure, well, you know, there's not much difference. And uh, they assume that their good works will bridge the gap and get them into heaven. Uh, They're basically good people in their minds. And then on top of that, there have always been, since the days of the Old Testament, plenty of false prophets who come along and tell people, peace, peace, when there is no peace, because they are not reconciled to God. Isaiah 57.21 declares, There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Uh, Thomas Watson was a Puritan, and in his body of divinity, he put it this way, The seeming peace a sinner has is not from the knowledge of his happiness, but the ignorance of his danger. Isn't that true? A lot of people are in peace, and they don't know that they are a heartbeat away from facing God in judgment. And so peace with God comes, first of all, through being justified by, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But also peace comes through sanctification, the process of becoming more holy as the Holy Spirit works that in us. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Paul had prayed for this same church. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that verse reminds us we cannot enjoy peace with God or the God of peace if we are living in known sin. Um. I was going to read for you a good portion of Psalm 38, and I don't have time to do that. You can read it later. Clearly, David was a believer when he sinned with Bathsheba and then arranged to have her husband murdered to try to cover his tracks. But Psalm 38 goes on verse after verse after verse describing the inner turmoil that David experienced while he was, before he had confessed his sin to the Lord and gotten right with the Lord. Uh, Thomas Watson, again, uh, I'm going to quote him several more times here, but he puts it this way, you may as well suck health out of poison as peace out of sin. (laughs) It just doesn't happen. Uh, And then he goes on and he states the solution. Watson says, if you would have peace, make war with sin. Um, and then, again, he has some wisdom. He says, once you've confessed your sin and turned from it, don't trust or boast in your own righteousness, but rather, he, he says, go to Christ's blood for peace. That blood of Christ, which pacified God, must pacify conscience. Christ's blood being sucked in by faith gives peace. And so, the first aspect of peace is peace with God. It comes through being justified by faith and then by walking with the Lord in holiness, confessing all sin and turning from it. I hope every single one of you is is right there today, that you know you have peace with God because you've trusted Christ and there's nothing that's clouding your relationship with him. But then there's a second aspect of peace, and it's sometimes more difficult, but that's peace with others. 
And peace with God results in peace with other believers, even if they are very different than you are. Concerning the reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles in the church, Paul in Ephesians 2.14 says of Christ, For he himself is our peace, who made the two groups, or both groups, into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He was referring to the fact that in the temple in that day, there was a chest-high wall that divided the court of the Gentiles from where the Jews could go. And there was a sign on the entrance to the court of the Jews that said, if any Gentile passes this sign, his life is in his own hands or he is responsible for his own death. Uh, They divided Jew from Gentile. Even believing Gentiles could not go in there. But... In Christ, that barrier is removed, and so as we saw recently in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11, Paul says, In the church, there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. And so we are one because of Christ. We are all one body in him. Now, it's easy to say that, but as many of you know, peace with other believers is hardly automatic. Uh, It takes a lot of work because we all have different personalities, different backgrounds, uh, different perspectives, and then on top of all of that, we all have residual sin in our lives that we fight against, And so there are often conflicts in churches. There were in the New Testament. There still are today. As we saw last time, Paul gave instruction to this church that if any brother was unruly after a process of trying to get him in line, then the church was to put him at a distance and to um, admonish him and not to have normal fellowship with him. Well, that kind of thing can cause division in a church because I'm sure that man, the unruly one, had friends and relatives, and they would have sided with him, and the church said no, Paul said this, and you have a built-in source for potential conflict in the church. And so Paul's approach was not to achieve peace by avoiding confronting sin. Uh, That would have resulted in bigger problems later, but rather Paul's approach was deal with sin and then pray for peace and work for peace among the various members in every circumstance. You know, I've seen so many people, believers, who think that the way you achieve peace is just avoid conflicts with other believers. And so they get their feelings hurt or get in some conflict with someone in this church, and suddenly I don't see them around. I ask around, they say, oh, well, you know, they had a run-in with so-and-so, and now they're going over to another church in town. That's sad. That's not the way to resolve conflict as believers. I know it's painful. I know it's difficult. But you grow in Christ as you seek to resolve conflict in a biblical manner. I've seen 
uh, marriages where husbands and wives don't deal with conflict in a godly biblical way. And so they come to see me, and honestly, I think, you know, if you'd come 10 years ago, we could have maybe gotten this work through. But they have 10 years of bitterness and anger and frustration that have built up, and now it's really, really difficult. It's best day by day by day to work through it, to sit down and talk and say, what, what's going on here? Let's work this out in the Lord. And not for one party to try to win, but for the couple to try to win by resolving conflict God's way. I've seen the same thing in local churches where pastors try to tiptoe around conflict. They never deal with issues in the church or confront sinning members. Dodging conflict never results in lasting peace. You have to work through it God's way. And um, I used to have, maybe I'll buy some more, a little book out on the book table by Ken Sandy called Resolving Everyday Conflicts. And God's Word tells us how to work through these things. Yeah, it's painful, and yes, it's difficult, but that's God's way. Not by glossing over sin or major doctrinal error, but by learning the peace of Christ. So we have peace with God, we have peace with one another, but a third aspect is inner peace. And peace with God also results in inner peace even when we go through difficult situations. I hope that all of you are familiar with, maybe have memorized and apply frequently Paul's formula for anxiety in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, where he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which... um, Peace of God, which surpasses, or there's different uh, translations there, all comprehension will, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, don't leave out that little phrase, with thanksgiving. I think that's the key. You say, well, how can I give thanks for this trial? Well, by faith. You say, Lord, you promised to work it together for good. So I'll give you thanks, trusting that you're going to do that. And when you do that, God's peace just floods your soul. You can't explain it. It's beyond comprehension, Paul says. But it does. It it really brings inner peace. So the three directions are peace with God through being justified by faith, through growing in holiness, peace with one another through working out our conflicts with Christ as the center and the goal, peace within as you uh, submit to God's hand in your life and trust him through prayer. A second way, Paul says, to grow here is to seek God's presence every day. That's the end of verse 16. The Lord be with you all. I had a professor in seminary once who said, you know, I think it's dumb to pray the Lord be with you because the Lord has promised to be with you. And so one of the students raised his hand and took the professor to this verse, and he had to recant his uh, hasty view. Uh, He certainly was right. The Lord has promised to be with all of us, but Paul knew that, and still Paul prays, may the Lord be with 
you all. Um, you know, I think that what Paul is praying is that we would know experientially, day by day, the Lord's presence with us. It's true. Positionally, we're in him. He's in us. But, you know, do we experience that in our daily walk? Three truths here I want to point out. First of all, I believe that Christ's experienced presence is essential as we journey toward heaven in our earthly pilgrimage. There's a story in Exodus 33. This happens right after the golden calf incident. And uh, Moses has kind of gone down, dealt with that sin. And then the Lord in Exodus 33.3 says to Moses, I will not go up in your midst because you're an obstinate people and I might destroy you on the way. Moses, and the text there tells us, he talked with God face to face. So he was very much aware of God's presence. And Moses goes on and he pleads with the Lord and he says in verse 15, if your presence does not go with us, then don't lead us up from here. And he goes on from there and boldly asks God to show him his glory. But Moses was very much aware without the presence of God, we're doomed. We're doomed. We need the presence of God with us. read an excellent book about a year ago by a, a professor named Ryan Lister called The Presence of God. And he very convincingly shows that from the Garden of Eden to the New Jerusalem and at the end of Revelation, the presence of God is a theme that ties the entire storyline of the Bible together. It's really fascinating how he shows that. And he says this, God is working to establish a people and a place for his presence. And right now, the church, Paul says, is the temple of God. What was notorious about the Old Testament temple? The presence of God, the Shekinah, the glory. And when God showed up there, everybody just fell on their faces and went, whoa, you know, God is here. God is here. And what distinguishes the church from every secular organization, service clubs or whatever it may be out there, ought to be God is here. God is here. The presence of God is with us. But then the question is, well, do we experience that? You know, I think when we come together as the people of God, there ought to be this sense of holy awe that God is with us. God is in our midst. A second thing to notice is that Christ's presence cannot be experienced when we harbor sin in our hearts. And that's true both individually and as a church. You know, if we were constantly aware that God is with us, we'd never sin, would we? You know, if you had that awareness, God is with me right now, I can't do that. I just wouldn't do that, whether it's a sin of thought, word, or deed. David, after he sinned with Bathsheba, and then he finally came to repentance, he cries out in Psalm 51, 11, Do not cast me away from your presence. 
and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And while the Lord has promised that the Holy Spirit will live in us and be with us forever, at the same time, we forfeit the experience of his presence if we live in known sin. We just can't continue in sin and sense that the Lord is with us. I don't believe he ever abandons or forsakes his children. But you know, if you have bitterness toward those who have wronged you, you're going to feel distant from God. If you haven't dealt with all of your relational issues with other people and gone to them and asked forgiveness if you've wronged them or sought to make the relationship right, you're going to feel distant from God. If you've got sins of the thought life that you're not judging and turning from, you're going to feel distant from God. Sin just has that sense of distancing us from his presence, whether it's in the church, whether it's in our homes, in our personal lives. So don't let any sin rob you of experiencing daily the presence of God. And then the final thing to note there is that Christ's presence should be experienced both individually and corporately. I think individually is what Jesus had in mind when he promised his followers and uh, as they go out to help fulfill his great commission, Matthew twenty-eight twenty, he said, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And Hebrews thirteen five assures us that he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And in the final chapter, Paul wrote, 2 Timothy 4, he's facing death by execution. He says everyone had deserted him. And then he adds this, 2 Timothy 4.17, But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Paul knew the presence of God right as he's facing the very end of his life. I hope you read biographies, especially I hope you read missionary biographies. And one of the great stories of missions is David Livingston who in the middle of the 19th century took the gospel into uncharted areas in Africa. One time somebody wanted to come join Livingston, and they asked him, uh, where's the road that you take to get there? And he said, if you need a road, you can't come. (laughs) He was out there. And uh, Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, was one of his favorite verses. And he said this, On those words, I staked everything, and they never failed. The same thing for John Payton. If you haven't read his story of taking the gospel to the cannibals of the New Hebrides Islands, you're missing a great, great read. But he faced many, many life-threatening dangers, and again, he relied on that same verse. And so the promise of Christ to be with us, should sustain us in whatever difficulty you're in, wherever you're at, no matter the threat you face. Also, though, corporately, corporately as a church, we should be experiencing the presence of God here in our midst. You know, if we don't do that, we're just going through the motions. And I dread that as a church. Show up, run through the program, go home, Yeah, was the Lord there? 
<laughs> Did we experience the Lord's presence with us? 1 Corinthians 14, the Apostle Paul, verse 25, he says, Even when an unbeliever comes into our assembly, he says the result should be that the secrets of his heart are disclosed so that he'll fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. And I just pray that the Lord will show up every Sunday. You know, that it's not just, okay, we ran through the program, another Sunday, check it off. No, the Lord needs to be in our midst experientially. We need that sense of his presence and that anybody who wanders in here will say, you know, the Lord was there. The Lord was there. So Paul says first to grow in Christ, seek his peace in every situation. Secondly, seek his presence every day. Thirdly, to grow in Christ, submit yourself to his word as your authority in life. Verse 17, Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. Up till now, Paul had been dictating the letter to a secretary, and now he takes the quill and uh, dips it in the ink, and he writes out this last two verses himself to authenticate, this letter is from me. You remember in chapter 2, verse 2, the Thessalonians had gotten some letters purporting to be from Paul, saying the day of the Lord already happened. And Paul said, no, no, no. Remember, I told you it wouldn't happen until thus and so. Uh, and so now he wants to authenticate, this is from me, the Apostle Paul. Uh, one commentator, Gene Green, writes, much more than just being a personal note, the subscript was a weapon in the war against heresy. And you know that war against heresy continues down through to this very day because Satan is always trying to bring in separate revelation from the New Testament, from the Old Testament, the inspired Word of God. There are false prophets today in charismatic churches, and they say, thus says the Lord, and then they speak ex cathedra as if God is speaking. You know, God has spoken in his Son. We have that right in front of us the apostolic word. In addition, you've got churches, major segments that call themselves Christian, the Roman Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, and they've allowed tradition to come along and really supersede the authority of the word of God. And so when you point out to people in those churches, well, where in the Bible is that? They, well, that's our tradition. And so the tradition overrides the Bible. The apostolic word is the authority. What the Apostle Paul and the other apostles wrote down in the New Testament through the Holy Spirit is the authority and nothing else. And, you know, every other teaching, every teaching I give you, you've got to compare it with the word and say, wait a minute, the Bible says this. This is our authority is the word of God. The late John Stott writes, There is nobody in the church who has an authority that even remotely resembles that of the apostles of Christ, nor has there been since the last apostle died. 
And he concludes, for to, to despise the word of the Lord is to despise the Lord of the word, to distrust his faithfulness and to disregard his authority. And so submission to the word of God is the only compass that we have. We live in a morally degraded society where values are relative and always changing. How do you know, for example, that abortion is wrong? Well, we know it because the word of God says that people are created in the image of God and that to to slaughter human life, innocent human life, is evil. Uh, how, How do we know that homosexual behavior is sin when our Supreme Court and all of our society says it's okay? Well, we know because the Word of God tells us what is sin and what is not. I had an interesting phone call last week from a woman out of the... She doesn't live in Flagstaff. I have never met her. She had read one of my sermons online about how wives should be subject to husbands. And I thought, oh boy, what's coming next? And then she she said, my husband of eight years wants to become a woman and he wants me to be submissive and remain married to him. What should I do? Now, how do you answer that question if the word of God does not speak to it and say he made them male and female and that we are to be what God made us? And so my point is simply we have to rely on the word of God. There's, there's no other guide. You'll just get off into all kinds of quicksand when you depart from the word of God. Now, to submit to the word of God, you have to know the word of God. And, and so that means you have to study it. You have to read it over and over. And you can't apply the word correctly unless you interpret the word correctly. And so uh, that whole process of Bible study is essential. But to grow in your Christian life, it's a matter of progressively submitting more and more of your life to more and more of the word as you come to understand it. So always be in the word of God. Otherwise, you'll get swept downstream with our godless culture. Finally, to grow in Christ, saturate your word with your life, I should say, with his grace. That's Paul's final prayer in verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. That verse is identical to the close of 1 Thessalonians 5.28 with the exception of one little word, all. And in light of the fact Paul has just been writing about unruly brothers, I think he is saying even the unruly brothers need the Lord's grace. We all need the Lord's grace to deal with persecution. They needed God's grace to deal with false teaching. They needed God's grace to deal with this unru- these unruly brothers. They needed God's grace. Uh, Gary Shogren, another commentator, puts it this way. For Paul, there is no experience of God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace. And John Stott made the observation, there can be no peace without grace. Just three quick observations here. First of all, both legalism and licentiousness are enemies of God's grace. I've heard Bible teachers say, well, grace is the balance point 
between legalism on the one hand and licentiousness on the other. That is a wrong concept. Uh, You know, get balanced between legalism and license. No, legalism and licentiousness both are manifestations of the flesh. And both are opposed to the grace of God, which is uh, operates in his spirit and in holiness. Uh, and so God's grace operating through the spirit changes our hearts, gives us the desire to please God, gives us the power to obey God. And you'll notice it's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ And so grace is not opposed to obedience, but it helps us to bring all of our lives in submission to the lordship of Jesus. As Paul says in Romans 6, grace doesn't give us the freedom to sin. Rather, grace gives us the freedom not to sin, to have victory over it in Christ. A second observation here is that God's grace through the gospel is the motivation for holiness and serving the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul said, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. He's referring to other apostles. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. And then later he writes to Timothy in his final letter, 2 Timothy 2.1, You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And as you know, if you've read your New Testament, Paul begins and ends most of his letters with grace. Grace to you. Grace to you. Uh, You know, it was not just a formal greeting. It was reality to Paul. He never got over the fact he was the chief of sinners And God showed him grace. And neither should you ever get over that fact. It's especially true for those of you like me who were raised in a Christian home. I think we tend to think, well, you know, I'm a good person. I was raised in Sunday school, and I've always known Jesus. No, we haven't. We, by birth, were born in sin. I got plenty of sins (laughs) since then. To confirm, yep, I'm a sinner. And it's only by God's grace that my parents raised me to know the Lord and brought me to church where I heard the gospel, where I got convicted of my sins, where I learned my goodness isn't going to get me into heaven. I need to trust in the shed blood of Christ and that alone. Grace, 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 grace all the way through. The grace of God is what motivates us to follow, follow him and obey him. And then the final thing, God's grace that you've experienced, God's grace shown to you should flow through you to others. You know, if you have experienced the grace of the Lord Jesus, now you're a channel for that grace to flow to other people. Uh, there are some self-righteous, and they may need to hear the law before they hear grace. They may need to hear, you violated this commandment and this commandment and this commandment, and through that the Holy Spirit begins to convict them of their sin. But then it's grace that comes in to bring salvation. 
with those who were already broken by sin and guilt, Jesus was always tender with those kind of people in the Gospels. Always showed grace to those who were under a burden of sin. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You know, almost the very last verse of the Bible, Revelation twenty two seventeen, gives this invitation to sinners. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. It's an invitation to sinners. Come, come, come to Jesus. There is abundant grace for all your sin. And the very last verse of the Bible is this. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Not only should we extend the grace of the gospel to others, but also as Christians, we should be learning and growing to be gracious people. It, it always grieves me when I see Christians who are harsh and judgmental and, and not gracious. They condemn others. Oh, they shouldn't be acting like that. You know, and they're, they're putting people down. Hey, did you receive grace? Be gracious. That person needs grace. And someone has said, every person we meet is fighting their own battles. We all bring a lot of baggage with us, don't we? And every person you meet is a candidate for grace. That's what saves them, is grace. And often you're the channel. To be gracious to people. Well, I don't like the way they look or the way they act. Yeah, right. Right. They need grace. So did I. And so I should be a gracious person in my manner toward them. Not accepting their sin. No, their sin is wrong. And certainly God has absolute moral standards. But the point is, if it weren't for the grace of God, we'd all be violating God's moral standards. Grace is what saved us, and through us, grace is what will save others. And so we need to be gracious people toward those in need. And you're the channel. Somebody's defined a rut as a grave with the end knocked out. A grave with the ends knocked out. You know, I wonder if some of you are in a spiritual rut. You're not growing, and you need to be growing. Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was the Russian writer who survived the gulag there, made this comment. He said, the meaning of earthly existence lies not as we have often grown used to thinking in prospering, but in the development of the soul. And God wants you to develop your soul, to grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus. You grow by seeking his peace in every situation. You grow by seeking his presence every day. You grow by submitting your life to his inspired and authoritative word. And you grow by saturating your life with his grace. Let's pray. 
Dear Father, I pray if any here are outside the experience of the grace of the Lord Jesus at the cross, that they would realize that their sins have separated them from you, that they are a heartbeat away from judgment, but that you invite them to come because Jesus invites sinners to come to him for forgiveness, for new life, for a relationship with you, the living and true God, through his blood shed on the cross. I pray that you would draw any to you. I pray if your children are kind of drifting or if they're in a rut, that today they would seek your peace. They would seek your presence. They would submit to your word that they would bathe in your grace that we all might be growing as a church to be your instruments of grace to this hurting city that we live in. We ask in Jesus' name.